Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome back to Revolution Recap. I'm Sean Donahue, joined today by Seth Maycomer of the Bent Musket, who's filling in for his second ever appearance on Revolution Recap. Uh, we're coming to you after the New England Revolution got a 1-1 draw against the Los Angeles Football Club um, on Saturday evening. This was the Revolution's first ever matchup with the expansion side and first ever cross-country trek to Bank of California Stadium, the new home of the expansion Los Angeles Football Club. Uh, LAFC is actually sitting in third place in the Western Conference and off to a phenomenal first season. So uh, impressive for the Revolution to go in there and get a draw. The way this game played out was you know, sort of the first half that LAFC had uh, probably the better of the play and the better of the chances, but the Revolution were able to keep them off the board, t- kick it into halftime, 0-0. Um, I thought in the second half the Revolution uh, were actually probably the better team and, and played better in the second half than they did in the first half, uh, but it was LAFC off of a Scott Caldwell turnover that led to you know, three or four shots from LAFC before uh, finally one of them was put away uh, that gave LAFC the, the, the one nothing lead in the 52nd minute through Marco Urania. Uh, but the Revolution came back uh, just 30 minutes later, um, it was Brandon Bai who headed home a cross from Teal Bunbury, who got the ball from Isaac Anking. Uh, Bunbury and Anking both started this game on the bench, but came on um, in the second half and obviously contributed heavily to that that goal by Brandon Bai, the rookie who scored his, his first ever goal there. Uh, with that, Seth, what did you think of this performance? What were your takeaways? And uh, you know, given the context of where the Revolution are in the playoff hunt, um, it was one point enough for for the Revolution here. Yeah, for me, when I look at this, it's definitely a great result. Um, it's definitely a result that if it happens early in the season, the team is absolutely ecstatic and, and pumped and definitely a, a something they can build upon. But at this point in the season, one point might not be uh, good enough. I mean, we're going to talk about the playoffs later on. But uh, that having been said, I do think it was a positive result for the Revs. Uh, and I think they looked really determined in their playing style. Um, one of my big takeaways from the game was that the Revs had 27 fouls. And that was just an absurd number that, that outpaced not only other teams in the league, um, but like games as a whole. Like so there were some game, multiple games um, that didn't come even close to that number of, of total fouls, and the refs committed 27 on their own. And now you can look at that uh, a few different ways, but for me, I look at it as a team that's really determined in making sure that the flow of the game was not going to go LAFC style because. Uh, they're a team that if they have the ball and they're moving it quickly and they're getting in the spaces, they can score a lot of goals. They have a lot of really dangerous weapons. So the Reds knew that they had to make sure that everyone was committed and make sure that they uh, were, were preventing LAFC from gaining any type of momentum. So it's not necessarily a, a tactic you want to see because it kind of you know prevents the beautiful game from, from being free-flowing and being the type of soccer we want to see. But the Reds were committed and it was a really good strategy for them to, to have as they went across the, the country to face LAFC. Yeah, I know that was a great point you bring up, the 27 fouls. And, you know, the Revolution have been, it's been part of their strategy all season, committing a lot of fouls, which is why they've had such a, a high yellow card total, too. Um, and, you know, another thing to note this game, too, is they did win 71 duels compared to 64 for LA. So, it, it, again, which to me, that's that and, and the fact that they also won 23 tackles. They're all signs that they really put the effort in this game and that this was, you know, important to them. Um, but at the end, as you said, you know, earlier on in the season, a one-one draw would have been a great result, and it you know was a good performance from the Revolution. But it just might not be enough uh, because of the position that they put themselves in. 
but the you know I agree with you. I think this was a very positive performance. Um, I think there's a lot of positives the Revs can take from this. I, I thought the the win over New York City FC was you know kind of fluky. I think if you go back and watch that game, the the opportunities that New York City had to to win that game, um, and and you know really put the Revolution away before the Revolution won that, um, make it make it hard for me to take too much from that match. But this one I actually thought was you know a good showing by the team, and uh, they actually outshot. Uh, LAFC 20 to 15, and particularly in that second half, really we were putting the pressure on. Um, I think at ha- I think at halftime, I think LA was out shooting them nine to six. So the Revolution really had a, a very strong second half uh, in this game. But you know, the, the question is, where has this been all season? Yeah, and I think to your point, um, the shots were actually good shots. Like we've seen games where the Revolution have played, and they put a lot of shots, but mo- a lot of them not you know dangerous. A lot of them aren't hitting the net or getting close to the net. Uh, so they actually had eight shots on target, which is pretty dangerous. And there was a lot of great opportunities. I mean, you think about uh, Juan Agadella had a couple. Uh, Casado was absolutely outstanding everywhere on the field today. And he had a couple long-range shots that, that you know, Tyler Miller, you know, uh, it must be pumped about what he made. I'm sure those are going to be, you know, in his highlight reel for years to come. Uh, so the team was really, really dangerous all throughout the night. And, of course, you had Pena at the end there uh, hitting the post and, and, you know, possibly sneaking away with – not even sneaking because they would have deserved it, I think, if they'd gotten those three points because they did play really well. You mentioned the idea of where has this been all year. I think that, you know, LAFC was a good opponent for the refs to play because uh, LAFC was giving them a lot of space. Uh, I was, you know, when I was watching the game, I was really thinking about – that, that L.A. wasn't tracking some runs in the midfield. So Paul Mariner really brought it up in the, the first half that Diego was was available, like top of the 18 all throughout the night. Uh, and then you saw that Brandon Bay had a, had an opportunity there at one point. And, of course, Brandon Bay scores the goal by making that late run into that space. So there's space in the midfield because they play that kind of interesting um, no-defensive midfielder uh, midfield. So it's kind of an interesting you know, way to play and it kind of opened up that opportunity. And I also thought there was a lot of space on the flanks as well. So the Revs had a lot of opportunities uh, as far as like crossing the ball, getting the ball to Pania. Uh, you saw that cross that happened from Teal Bunbury that led to a goal. So there was just a lot of space in the field, um, which led to some really kind of free-flowing free soccer on both sides. But I think it really benefited the Revs where, like you mentioned, NYCFC, that was a really messy game. But it was also kind of the, the circumstances because there isn't a lot of space in that field. And, and you need a guy like, you know, Pania or you need a guy like, uh, you know, Juan Gadello on the right side or you need maybe Teal Bumbray getting out to that wide space. That wasn't as available in that NYCFC game. So I think that the, the circumstances on Saturday night really played to the Reds' uh, favor. And that's why we saw kind of open game and a lot of opportunities from both sides, uh, especially the Reds. Yeah, that was a good point you brought up about what Paul Mariner pointed out too about the the guys not being tracked and, and Fagundes was one guy that he picked up was being open a lot in this game and I, I thought Diego had a pretty good game with with five key passes 88 percent passing accuracy um, and there were a lot of times when they could have picked him out that I think they they failed to um, but one of the things that I found really interesting was you know down a goal um, and you know late in the game they pulled out Diego Fagundes for for Isaac Anking obviously that worked out because Anking you know contributed to the, the equalizing goal but what did you make of that substitution because at least to me I thought Diego Fagundes had a pretty good game i thought diego was okay actually i think that uh he did have some great passes but i there's one play in particular where he had the ball and he just he sometimes holds on to it too long and we saw uh in some circumstances he holds on to it too long in some circumstances he does the right thing and plays it quickly off his foot and that's where diego's at his best he gets the ball and he quickly finds that pass and i think that one thing he's lacked as a number 10 is that boldness of, of taking someone on and, and trying to get into 
you know, in dangerous positions and, and create opportunity for himself where we saw Lee Wynn do that in past years. You know, Lee Wynn could be a distributor, but he also could be a guy that, you know, hits a couple cuts and then, you know, creates the opportunity for himself. And I think that Diego sometimes finds himself in positions, especially closer to the, the 18, where he doesn't always, um, doesn't always, you know, take it on himself and, and be bold in those moments. Overall, I thought it was a fine game from Diego. I don't think there's any reason I bench him or anything like that. But I thought that there were moments where he could have been a little bit more decisive or a little bit more bold. And I think that maybe that's why you saw him, him come off the field. Uh, Anki, I think, is, is, is a guy who's, you know, growing with confidence. I mean, he does a nice job in, with NYCFC. He goes off for the national team and, and performs pretty well. And he comes back and he does a great job creating that that opportunity. The way he brings the ball down that leads to that uh, equalizer was huge. I mean, that's a great touch for him to to create some space and to create an opportunity there. And then later on in the game, he has this opportunity uh, where he flubs it a little bit. And what I loved about it is that the next moment he's chasing the ball down and uh, he creates an opportunity where he the, the ball gets hit off of him. It goes into out for a throw in and they can kind of press right there and try to create another opportunity off that moment. So I think that the, it was a... To me, it was a good move because uh, you can get a guy on that's full of energy. I mean, I think that in years, um, in weeks past, in months past, we've seen that this team hasn't had a, a full bench. So we see oftentimes that Brad Friedel is hesitant to go to the bench, first of all, and he doesn't always use all three subs. I think he's found a guy that he can trust and that can really change the game. Uh, so, you know, he had moments where, uh, where he maybe could have done better, but I think for a guy his age, he is performing well enough to to get minutes and to be a da- difference maker on this team. Uh, so I, I was fine with that uh, move. Um, I was actually my my thing I thought was was interesting is that you saw Scott Caldwell exit the field a little bit earlier because I thought he actually had a, a pretty good game. Him and Casado, I think that that's got to be your pairing going forward. To me, I mean, Zahibo's not even in the 18. I don't think Zahibo should be in the 18 going forward. And if it's not Caldwell, then I think maybe you could slot Kellen Rowe back there. I thought Kellen Rowe looked pretty determined. He was working really hard on both sides of the ball. Uh, but I thought Caldwell and uh, Casado paired really well. I wondered if uh, he, Caldwell was taking off, taking off because uh, of that situation where he, he kind of gave the ball away that led to that goal. And I wonder if it was a little bit of a punishment of saying like, hey, you can't have that type of mental lapse. Like if, you, if you're if you going to have those types of moments, you're going to have to come off the field and kind of have some uh, consequences there. I'm not sure. I mean, it might have just be pre-planned because we did see two subs at the same time. Uh, Caldwell came off for Juan Adele. You also saw Brian Wright uh, come off for Teal Bunbury, both of those in the 57 minute. So you do wonder if it was almost a predetermined uh, substitution. But I did think it was a little curious that uh, Caldwell did come out soon after he turned that ball over that led to the goal. But, be- I mean, besides that, Caldwell and I thought Casado did excellent uh, as far as just doing the high press and then getting behind the ball and, and and making sure that, you know, they're closing out passing lanes. So I was really impressed by by those two. So um, the, the, the Fagundes sub didn't, didn't surprise me as much because it's a little bit later in the game. You're bringing on fresh legs and a little bit of energy. The Caldwell one was a little bit more surprising for me. So I, I absolutely agree with you that Caldwell and Caicedo are the, you know, at this point, 
absolutely the Revs' best pairing back there. I don't think there's really any argument from you know what we've seen from Zahibo and Machado that either of those two um, should un- unseat Caldwell or Casado. And, and Casado, there's a good argument for, has been you know the Revolution's best player uh, for a good chunk of this season. Um, you know, I, I did kind of think that this was a, a kind of a punishment for that turnover. And you know, at, when the turnover took place, I think it was Palmer that said, you know, this is very uncharacteristic for Scott Caldwell. Um, and generally, in past seasons, I would I would agree. But I think this year we've actually seen it a few times from Scott where he's turned it over um, leading to dangerous counterattacks which um, from what we've seen from over the years is uncharacteristic but this year it's starting to become a little bit less of, of a shock to, to see it from him I don't know if I'm being too harsh but you know there's at least one or two other situations I can remember in which uh, a turnover from him has, has led to a quick counterattack and a goal um, and as one of the generally one of the Revs best passers um, it's a it's a bit concerning and maybe you know it's just two flukes but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, based on this happening before, that that was part of it. But on the other hand, he did have a yellow card, and you know, we saw earlier in the season um, when he got that second yellow and got ejected. And, and, and as you mentioned earlier, there were a lot of fouls going around in this game. So part of that, I'm sure, that played into his mind too when he was deciding to make that sub was, you know, what's happened previously and trying to avoid a red card, right? Yeah, that's very true. And I wonder a little bit about the passing. This is me just, you know. Um just kind of putting a theory out there. I wonder if it has a little bit to do with, you know, Caldwell uh, playing a little bit more advanced this year, uh, where before he's, you know, making a little bit more of those safer passes. Now he's, you know, pushing a little bit more forward because the whole team's pushing forward as part of that high press. Uh, so I wonder if he's finding himself under pressure a little bit more, which is going to lead to, to turnovers a little bit more frequently. And then, of course, that's going to be problematic because if he's further up the field, unless, you know, Casado or whoever else is playing defensive midfielder is sliding in behind him, uh, you have problems because now it's just, you know, whoever's coming down your throat against that, that back line. So I wonder if his positioning this year, being asked to play a little bit more advanced, is leading to his, him having a little bit more of the turnovers. And what did you think of the defensive performance from, from De La Maya and Andy Baba, obviously with uh, Mancien going uh, back to London for uh, the, the expected birth of his child? Um, kind of last minute, at least to us, last minute notice that, that it was going to be De La Maya getting the start. Um, you know, one of the knocks on him at times this year has been getting beat over the top on, on, on long balls. And I thought we did see a bit of that again in, in this game. Um, you know, obviously good good result to hold the LAFC to just one goal there. But uh, how, how do you think the two of them did together as a pairing? Yeah, I mean, I thought the back line performed pretty well, especially against a team that's that's pretty dynamic and have a lot of attacking weapons. I mean, uh, Vea, Rossi. Urania, I mean, they brought Ramirez off the bench. I mean, this, this is a team that that loves to attack, and uh, they did pretty well overall. Delamea had a couple opportunity, a couple times where he was going one on one with a player, and he kind of used his body to to you know see the ball out of bounds off the and, and kind of neutralize a threat. Um, so I mean, I thought the backline did pretty well. Actually, he was pretty impressed as well with Brandon By. I think he's settling in and, and having some decent moments. Um, he scored the goal, obviously. He had another opportunity where he shot. He probably could have done better on LAFC's goal. That was kind of a that was pretty chaotic in the box. What was happening? I mean, uh, I believe it was Rossi who was teeing up a shot and then he, he missed it, uh, which is it was a weird night as a whole. I felt like a lot of players were were slipping or miss hitting the ball. So I don't know if it had something to do with the the grass or the conditions of the field or if it was wet. I'm not sure, but there's a lot of guys that are missing missing the ball and missing their shots and, and falling over. Uh, but that was a weird moment, and then there was kind of chaos defending. And at one point, the ball comes to buy and he kind of flubs it and it comes back to to the LAFC player who plays out to Arena. But um, other than that, I thought Brandon Bai did really well. The only person that I thought could have done better on the night um, 
I thought Andrew Farrell was a little weak on that right-hand side. He He's had been up and down. I mean, he's had some really bright games this year, uh, but I thought there was a few, off, few times where he was a little bit off of his mark. He wasn't really as tight as he should have been. Um, I'm not sure if I, I – I don't know what to think about that goal that was scored by LAFC because he drops into the line anticipating that shot. And, of course, the shot doesn't come because the shot's flubbed. Uh, and then, you know, Arania was basically left wide open on that, that you know, left side near Farrell. So I wondered a little bit if Farrell should have came off his line and challenged or if Delamea was supposed to slide over on that opportunity. Uh, the other thing I thought was that Farrell's crossing wasn't as sharp. Um, but overall, I mean, it was, it was a good – to only allow one – one goal and end up with a 1-1 draw. I thought it was a good night for a back line, especially because Mancian has been really good. I thought uh, he's been a solid addition. I mean, you saw Claude Dielna come in last year, and even when he first came in, I was like, I don't know if this guy's really an upgrade. I mean, he had some good moments. He has some bad moments. Now, of course, he's not even in the 18. But Mancian's come in. I thought he's looked pretty solid. And, and to me, I, he's a guy you're going to keep around for next year and build around. Uh, so for him to be gone, I thought the back line performed pretty well as a whole. Yeah, I agree. And I, I was going to point out Andrew Farrell, too, as a guy that I thought maybe didn't have the best game. And in particular, on the offensive end, I, there were a few key moments I remember where uh, the team was in a dangerous spot and, and he was in a position to make the final pass. And he was, you know, off. He wasn't off by much, but he was off by, you know, a foot or two. And, and that cost them, you know, what could have been a really dangerous chance. Um, and of course, the, the defensive uh, issues as well that you pointed out. Um, the one other position I wanted to talk about was Brian Wright getting his, his second straight start. Um, I thought he did fine, but I, I was not quite as impressed by him in this game as I was with, with what he did in, against New York City FC. I, in that game, I was you know particularly impressed with his ability to, even when the ball wasn't at him, to, you know, to be physical with the, with the back line and, and kind of cause problems there. But I, I didn't think he did quite as much in this game, or at least didn't have as much impact as he did, um, you know, <laughs> ignoring the fact that he scored in that game uh, and this one. Uh, what did you think of his second start? Yeah, it's funny. Uh, I agree with you. Fine was exactly the word that I thought of. I, I didn't. I wasn't blown away by his performance. Uh, you know, he had that good opportunity where Rowe sends him in. And he sends in a shot that he really should have finished. I mean, uh, a lot of people on the team, including head coach Brad Friedel, talk about how uh, he is the best finisher on the team right now since Nemeth has left. Um, he should have had, uh, you know, put a better strike in on goal in that opportunity. Uh, I thought he did okay as far. What I think he's good at is that he battles. You know, he won a lot of headers. I feel like when I was watching the game, he was constantly, you know, challenging that back line and either, you know, winning the header himself or putting the ball in a good position that the Revs could try to win that second ball. Uh, so I thought he did pretty well at that. There was times where he stretched the back line. But you can see that this is a guy that hasn't gotten a lot of M MLS minutes and might not be a, a long-term MLS guy. I mean, he gets, you know, in behind a back line and he doesn't really necessarily know what to do in that moment. He doesn't have that you know, burst of speed to beat someone or that one quick move to, to beat the defender. So he kind of relies on, you know, his strength to try to hold off the defender. And it doesn't always work in MLS. Uh, I think him and Zimmerman had a few battles uh, where it was pretty tight and Zimmerman usually got the best of those battles. Um, so, I, I mean, I thought he did all right. One thing I think is interesting about him is that I think that he's better off as a, a longer uh, – he, he needs to, like, start the game and get longer shifts. Uh, where when he comes off the bench, I don't know if he, he offers much in those moments because I thought before he had these two starts, he would come on late and basically get in the box and, and almost um, he get hit around in the box a lot and kind of fall down. And I'm not saying necessarily he's falling down easy, but I didn't see a lot of him to, to change the game as far as you know getting in the box and, and getting headers towards goals. 
uh, where if you give him a longer shift, he's able to battle a little bit more and and wear down some of the defenders. Um, that having been said, I don't see him winning out the spot over Taylor Bunbury. I think Teal Bunbury has that energy. He's you know had an assist in this game. He's you know has quite a bit of goals. He has his best season uh, statistically so far as far as goals. So I think that if, if he's fully healthy, if the hamstring is good, Teal Bunbury starts, uh, which is interesting to me about what does what happens with Brian Wright from there. Because uh, I just I don't know if he can make an impact in just ten minutes in a game. Yeah, I think that's a great observation. I don't think Brian Wright is the type of guy that you know you bring on as a super sub to try to change the game. Um, and I don't think the Revolution have that guy as far as a, a forward goes when when Bunbury is starting, um, which is a bit of a problem too. Um, and of course they they did make a signing this week that we can get to eventually um, on on the note of attacking subs. Um, but yeah, no, I, I I agree. I think Brian Wright is a you know serviceable player. Did well against New York City FC. Um, is a guy that can can give you a spot start, but I, he's not the the change of pace type guy that you put out there. Um, maybe, and this was you know something that I've mentioned on, on past episodes, maybe in a situation where you just want to throw an extra body out there to, to get forward uh, late in the game when you're down a goal and it's the you know 85th minute or something like that and you just need a, an extra attacker, um, he's the guy you bring on. But we, we haven't seen that all season from, from Brad Friedel, so it doesn't seem that he thinks that that's really an option. Um, and, and then the, the one last position, actually, that I did want to talk about is, is goalkeeper because, once again, Brad Knighton got the start over Matt Turner, and I thought he had a, a phenomenal game and was part of the reason that the Revolution got out of here with a, with a draw. Um, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens going forward there you know, for future seasons, but uh, right now it, it's got to be Brad Knighton's spot to, to lose for the rest of the year, right? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think Matt Turner still has potential, obviously. I mean, this is the bumps in a row for a goalkeeper. Uh, I thought Brad Fiedel's, uh, sorry, I thought Brad Knighton saves. Um, overall, he was a lot of it had to do with position. He got into good positions, making sure he wasn't beat on the near post at times and getting big at the right moments. Um, he didn't do anything that was like spectacular, like we saw you know, uh, Matt Turner do earlier this season, but I thought he was solid. And I also wonder if some of the the backline organization has to do with Brad Knight and being back there. I mean, this is a guy who's experienced a lot. He's an older guy. He's a veteran guy. Um, so, you know, especially this week with the Anibaba and Delamea coming in being the center backs, I wonder if Brad Knight and help organize that backline a l- little bit and, and give them that confidence to do well in this game. Um, Distribution-wise, I thought Brad – it's going to be a drop for Matt Turner. Uh, but that's okay. I mean, you know, it doesn't always have to be quick breaks – uh, I think there was one time where he, he tried to go for a quick break and he, towards the end of the game and he threw the ball and ended up behind the player that was trying to, to run forward yeah. and went out of bounds. And, and you're like, all right, I mean, that's what, kind of what you get with Brad Knight, you know. But I thought he was solid. And, and to me, uh, you have two solid games in a row from Brad Knight. And I think at this point uh, for Frito, it's an easy choice. You ride the hot hand and, and go forward and see what Brad Knight can do for this team as they try to make that late playoff push. Well, what's, what's interesting, too, when you mentioned distribution, is I remember early on in the season commenting on uh, Matt Turner's good distribution, and I forget who it was, but but somebody mentioned, you know, well, maybe Matt Turner's distribution is, is better than what we saw from Bobby Shuttleworth and Brad Knighton because of, you know, Brad Friedel's system and, and you know, not always wanting to boot it long. Maybe that was a Jay Heaps thing. Um, but I think it's been abundantly clear from these past two games that it you know, wasn't a Jay Heaps thing because Brad Knighton goes back in there and every single one of his distributions uh, is going long. Um, do you think, you know, I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but uh, is, is Brad Knighton just not comfortable with the, you know, playing it short? Is there too too much fear of a turnover there? It's just... It's just 
interesting to me that you know with Matt Turner you saw a lot more short distributions and keeping possession, and now it's just completely changed when when Brad Knighton goes back out there. Yeah, I mean maybe because um, there's certainly a risk that if you try to play short and you you miss your target or you can't hit your target correctly, uh, that now you're going to have LAFC or whoever the opponent is coming right down your throat, and that's that's dangerous. I mean that's a game changing play if that were to happen. So it's much safer to, to play that ball long. I also think that. Uh, with a guy like Brian Wright, you do want to go a little bit longer because he is a guy that, like I said, battles a little bit more. Uh, so he, like I said, he, he'd, he'd win a header or he'd put the ball in a nice place for a revolution player to, to make the next play, where I think that um, you don't see that quite as much with Teal Bunbury, where his touch can be a little bit off. Um, so I'd be curious to see when Teal Bunbury comes back into, I mean, obviously he had a good long run and we did see a lot of that long distribution still this game, but it'd be interesting to see uh, when Teal Bunbury comes back in the starting le- 11, do we still see that long distribution? And if so, we can probably point to the fact that Knighton feels a little bit more comfortable playing that way. Yeah, and it, the, the one thing that I always find particularly frustrating is the, the amount of goal kicks that go directly out of bounds. And I think Knighton ended up with three or four of them. Um, but again, you know, it's it, and you could write it off a bit more in, against New York City FC because of that narrow, ridiculous field. Uh, but here, that that wasn't the case. But um, you know, you can you can live with the bad distribution if you're getting the great saves and the solid performance and the good organization. And I think that's what you've had the the past two games certainly. Um, on that note, I did want to talk about the the new addition to the Revolution, the Argentinian uh, Guillermo. Do you know how to pronounce the last name? Is it Hotch? I do not know. I don't know. I'll be honest. I don't know a lot about this person. I thought it was very telling that uh, in the broadcast he was brought up by Brad Friedel. I'm uh, sorry, Brad uh, Feldman. There's a lot of Brads on this team. Brad Feldman and Paul Mariner, and they even recognize that they this person is probably depth, and this person is probably not going to make much of an impact during this second half of the season. So I think that was kind of telling as far as uh, what the Argentinian might do this season. Yeah, I thought that was very telling. I, I noticed that as well. I, I was surprised to, to see them be that um, obvious on the broadcast about it. Um, but I know a few of us, including you know, Julian Cardillo, was, was looking up to see what his goal-scoring record was, and we couldn't find any record of him ever scoring a professional goal. Um, and for a guy that's that's advertised as a you know he's 25 years old, so he's been around a while, but a guy that's advertised as a you know forward slash attacking midfielder. It's hard to get too excited uh, to, to see them signing a guy that hasn't scored a professional goal. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's that's pretty concerning. The only thing you hope is that this is a low-risk option in, in that they bring him in, have a look at him, and they can cut him at the end of the season. Um, so if he's not on a guaranteed contract for next year, I guess there's not much of a harm. I mean, I, we don't know his salary number, but I can't imagine it's very much. Uh, so maybe you just bring him in. You get an extra body in practice. Uh, you can watch him a little bit closely. I do wonder how he ended up here. Is this someone where I, I doubt they were scouting him? I mean, I, I just can't imagine that the, the team really went after this guy, went down to you know view him in person and really thought he was going to be the next uh, player to change the, the game and add something to the team. Um, so I, I wonder if they, an agent came and offered him up and they said, why not take a flyer on him? Uh, it just seemed kind of interesting that this deal came up just before the roster freeze. Yeah, and it seems like he left his his last team in kind of controversial circumstances too, and there was you know some unhappiness there. So it is it is very interesting, and I'd be curious to you know I'm sure eventually we'll find out how they found him. 
Um, but he, he hasn't really played enough games to, to have much of a scouting report on at this point. Um, there's a few highlights out there where it looks like he, you know, he's got some good juggling skills and some, some good dribbling <laughs> skills, but I don't know what, how that translates to a, a very physical uh, MLS league. Um, but you know, I think there's one thing that we all agree that the, the Revolution could have used in this window, and that was you know, a change of pace attacker. Um, I, I don't know that this is the guy, uh, but obviously your options are limited after you get past the, the, the transfer deadline. Uh, it, it does seem like a very low-risk move, and I have to assume that his, his contract probably isn't guaranteed past this year, um, so there's not much risk there. But it, I, I think uh, you know, for anyone looking for the Revolution to, to get a change of pace attacker, um, probably a bit disappointed that this is the only offensive guy that they really brought in um, in this window slash this roster freeze deadline. Yeah, I'll be curious that if we actually see him. So we've seen you know guys in the past come in and not necessarily get much, many minutes. But Friedel's been interesting where everyone that he's brought in, he's given a shot. I mean, Machado, uh, to me, even when he was signed, I was like, I don't know what to think of this player. And I went down on, and saw him at practice. And I was, I was not impressed. I thought he looked very tired, very sluggish. And I, I didn't think he was going to make much of an impact, maybe some minutes late in the game. And then we saw him get a, a start, you know, and, and we saw right away that he probably wasn't going to be an MLS player. Uh, so it'd be curious to, to, I'm curious to see if he actually gets a decent run out at some point or if this is a guy who we'll largely see in practice and we won't see much as far as game minutes. Yeah, I think that's probably accurate too. And but it it is a great point you mentioned that you know in the past when they've signed guys uh, in the summer transfer window, um, they haven't necessarily always gotten a chance for whatever reason. Uh, maybe the fit hasn't worked out, but it, everyone Brad Friegel brings in is getting getting their shot. Um, even you know the rookie Segbers is now making the bench in, in in the eighteen. We might see him at some point. Um, and you know guys like like Haravu who kind of were buried in past years are, are getting minutes now so any, anyone that's you know showing up and, and training hard um has gotten a shot this year whether or not it's worked out so i assume we'll, we'll, we'll probably see him at, at some point um but it's, it'll be interesting there's only you know six games left um and, and on that note with just six games left let's let's talk a little bit about the the playoff chances of the revolution uh my favorite site is always 538 for their predictions and their percentages and they have the revolution back down to 13 percent after this weekend and after that one point uh, i think what hurts the revolution just as much as that you know one one draw is the fact that um the Montreal Impact got a, a massive victory this weekend, uh, w- winning four to one at the Philadelphia Union. I, that was not a result that I expected to see, um, and that really puts the Revolution in, in a bit of a hole now. Uh, the Revs do still have a game on Montreal in hand, but they're now five points back with with six games to go. Uh, is it still realistic to think the Revolution have a, a good shot at the playoffs, or is it you know hanging by a thread at this point? Yeah, I think it's hanging by a thread. I mean, I, I mentioned this last time I was on in, in a few different places. Before the season, I said there was no way that this team was going to make the playoffs just because you're going to have growing pains. Uh, you have a new coach coming in. He's going to try to figure out his his system and his way of playing. And, and it's tough to, to do with MLS, like, especially if you're a, a first-time coach. And we've, we heard about Brad Friedel having coaching opportunities at various places, whether it's Tottenham or the, the U.S. youth teams. Uh, but really, this is the first time that he was in charge of a full team. So there was going to be some growing pains there. And then I saw how good Pania was. Um, and I still think Pania is a really good player. He's he's kind of faded a little bit. But even in against NYCFC, he created a lot of opportunities. And that goal was was a, um, against NYCFC was a benefactor of what Pania was doing. So I, I still think Pania is a game changer that really helps his team quite a bit. So about three or four games in, I said the team was going to make the playoffs. Uh, I have since 
decided because we've seen the the summer lull that this is not going to happen. And that summer that summer lull is what's going to end up you know hurting this team. When you go back and think about the dropped result, especially against the LA Galaxy, that hurt the Revs. I mean, whether it was the the morale, whether it was the momentum. I mean, it, that was something that was really damaging because they played very good soccer that day and they ended up losing um, a very important game. Uh, oh, do they tie that game? Yeah, they tied that one. They tied that one. Okay. Yeah, but that was a really important game because they, they had the lead and they should have had three points. Um, so, yeah, we, when you look at the, the, the games coming up, there are games that they should win. You know, next week against Chicago Fire, them coming into town. No, no, no sorry. Be- sorry, actually, let me correct that. They did lose that one. <laughs> they, yeah, yeah. That was the two stoppers time two goals. Yeah, it was the two stoppers time goals that I... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, just making sure. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want anyone to call me out afterwards. No, no, no. You're, you're <laughs> so right. I figured yeah. if I asked you, then uh, they could call you out instead. <laughs> <laughs> I had to correct um, yeah. myself there. <laughs> yeah, that was definitely a heartbreaking loss and something that was a morale, um, you know, hurt the morale of the team uh, going forward. And the, and the t- team has even said that. Friedel has even said that at times. That game really hurt the team. Yeah, so so the playoff hopes at this point are, are very slim. They have to go on quite a bit of a run. They have to win. Like, there's no tying anymore. Um, you have to win games. And, and not just even the ones that you're supposed to win. You basically have to win the rest of the season. Because not only do you have the Montreal Impact, who are above the line, but D.C. United are now above the New England Revolution. And they look good. I mean, they they're, most of their remaining games are at home. Um, so they have the ability to pass Montreal Impact and make, it in, uh, make a, a run there. Uh, Toronto is probably out, you would imagine. Uh, but you never know. I mean, they're sitting on 30 points. So they're still a dangerous team. So, I mean, this is a New England revolution that could not only not make the playoffs, but could end up as one of the, the, the bottom dwellers in the Eastern Conference. So it's very interesting what's going to happen in these, these you know, final weeks of the MLS season. Yeah, and the, the other site that I like to look at is, is club sports or sports club stats because what they do is they actually run all sorts of simulations to, just, to figure out what chance a team would have of making the playoffs if they went, you know, whatever record in the remaining games. And if you look at it now, to have a greater than 50% chance of making the playoffs, the Revolution would have to go 4-1-1 one, and one in their last six games, and that would give them a 69% chance. Um, if, they go four, if they go four wins, two, two losses, and zero draws, um, they have a 49% chance. Uh, so really, they need to go. They need to win at least four of these last six games. And looking at the schedule, um, certainly, I think that's never going to happen unless they can beat Chicago next weekend. Uh, that obviously is a must-win. And then they're playing um, their next home game after that is against Orlando. That's also a winnable game. And then of course they finish the season against Montreal at home, um, and that's obviously a six-pointer and an absolute must-win. But you know, when you try to figure out, you know, best case scenario, let's say they win those three home games. When you try to figure out where that other win is going to come from. Um, you know, at Atlanta United doesn't seem like that's going to happen. At Real Salt Lake, who was you know playing really well lately, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, you look at the Toronto game, and you know that game to me is it seems like the one opportunity that you have to maybe get a result on the road, just because Toronto's you know, still been struggling this year. Um, so if you look at this upcoming schedule, I, I think unless they win their next two games, uh, you, you might as well just write off the playoff chances. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like I said, you basically have to win. All the way. I mean, I, I know that other things happen, but if you want to control your own fate, you have to win the rest of your games, and that's that's difficult. Is it possible? Sure, but I mean, it's MLS. Any like anything's possible. In reality, this is a team that uh, has had ups and downs, and uh, could could you know easily lose some of these games that they should win. So yeah, I mean, when you look next week, they have to win. And if they don't win next week, I would say it's it's definitely time to to call it. <laughs> 
uh, no playoffs this year. Yeah, and we've seen this team at many years ago, certainly in the Steve Nichol era, go on some fantastic runs to end the season to, to sneak into the playoffs or move way up in the standings. Um, but I, I don't look at this team and I don't look at this league really anymore as, as a one that's capable of doing that. Um, I think the rest of the league has gotten to be too good now to to have that kind of, you know, the kinds of collapses that, you know, would take place for the, for the Revolution to go on such a run. And I think the Revolution team uh, right now doesn't inspire the confidence that, that they're capable of doing that to me. Um, you know, it's, it's great that they're still mathematically alive and, you know, it's not completely out of the realm of possibilities that they make it because that makes the, the end of the season interesting. Uh, but, it, you know, and, and like you said earlier, I, I agree with you that going into the season, I didn't think the playoffs are realistic, but it becomes more disappointing when you see how well this team played at times at the beginning of the year. And then to yet again, after years after years of watching this team go on summer slumps that once again, that did them in this year. Um, it's just, you know, incredible how predictable uh, the way some of the seasons have played out recently with that with that summer slump. Um, but let's jump into the the next game against the Chicago Fire. Uh, we talked. So about, can I jump in for a second? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. So so exactly to your point, um, like they started off so well, and that's why I was so convinced that this team needed a, a dynamic right winger. Uh, during the summer transfer window. And I think that you saw against LAFC where Mancian wasn't there, that this team, if they played focused, determined soccer, and they were really keyed in what they were supposed to be doing, you didn't necessarily need someone along that back line. But if you bring in someone on the right wing, I think you change this team big time because we've seen teams focus so much on Pania and you know double team him and limit him and man mark him and, and foul him. And the Revs, when they do that, don't have many other options. They don't really have a, a plan B because, you know, Juan Adelo has been okay. He's had solid moments, but he he's not as dangerous. I mean, he had a couple great opportunities this past game, but he didn't finish them. And you need to finish them. If you're Juan Adelo and you're coming off the bench, you need to finish those opportunities. So uh, this team is is at times very one-dimensional. And I think if you would have brought in a right winger to to really be dynamic and change the game and, and to, you know, take the attention off of other players, that I think no doubt you would have seen this be a, a playoff team. I think Mancian's a good pickup, but I think that he he wasn't going to get the team to the playoffs. He was going to be an upgrade, but he wasn't going to be the guy that, that led the team to the playoffs. No, that's a, a fantastic point. And I think that's why some people, you know, including us, were so confused by the Machado signing, too. Of you know, here is your transfer window, and it's pretty obvious what positions you need to, to some help in. Uh, one of which being you know another attacking player, a right winger that can can maybe do what Pania does on the left. Um, and you know there was nothing done to address that, except maybe this this Argentinian signing they just made, which I I, I think is, is asking a lot if he's going to you know step in and do that. Um, but yeah, Mansam was a good pickup. He's he's looked good for this team. Um, they're probably overpaying for him. Uh, but, you know, he's not a guy that, like you said, that's going to turn this into a contender. Um, the offense is lacking in, in dynamic options uh, because that that right wing spot. And I think Juan Aguadelo, if you look over the past few years, has probably been one of the biggest disappointments on this team because he's a guy with so much potential um, that did so well for the revolution back in 2013 when they had him then. Um, and it was, you know, 2013, what was he? He was, you know, just 20 years old at that point, uh, but hasn't really developed into the player that we expected since then. And, you know, has been moved to the right wing and couldn't lock down the striker spot. Um, you know, and while we're on Juan Agodelo, he's, a, you know, apparently I think is a free agent after this year and can go back to Europe. Um, I have to think that this is his last year on the team, right? Yeah. And not only because um, 
he might go back to Europe. I'm, I don't. I wonder if he will go back to Europe because he has a family now. Uh, he, he obviously he has that dream of Europe, but I don't know where necessarily he would go. But if I'm the Revs, I think unless you're 100 percent uncertain that you can get an upgrade uh, for him, or you want to keep him as a bench option, I think it's time to move on from Juan Adelo. I thought he did great that first season when he was with Diego Fagundes, but since then, it's always about the promise, you know? It's always about, oh, if he gets hot, or if he gets healthy, or if he gets in that that good run of form, he's a national team player, and he'll be able to, to lead this team to victory. But year after year, I mean, this year I predicted that he was going to be the, the golden boot winner because I thought he was going to be used as a striker, but it's the same thing we've seen uh, over and over again with Agadella, where it just it doesn't pan out. And, uh, you know, he's a likable guy. He's a talented guy. But like I said, if you come in on, on this game and you have the two opportunities that you have, and yeah, Tyler Miller makes some some decent saves, but you got to finish one of those. I mean, you had opportunities. And if you're an elite striker in MLS, if you're a guy that's supposed to be a starter for this team, you have to finish one of those opportunities. So for me, I, I think that it's it's probably time for Juan Agadello to, to leave the team. Uh, whether that means he just goes somewhere else in MLS, um, which would be interesting because that's basically him walking away for free as opposed to trading him or something. Uh, or if he goes back to Europe, which again, you're losing him for free. Uh, I I do wonder if we end up seeing him uh, leave the revolution and then to try to find someone else. Yeah, and he's, you know, we should point out he's the third highest paid player on the team after Mancian and Dialma um, at, at 602000 uh, guaranteed compensation and he's certainly not playing up to that level and it, it is frustrating because like like you said um, you see that the potential sometimes and sometimes he puts in phenomenal performances but there's there's never been any consistency certainly in a second stint with the revolution um, you know he'll go on with you know three or four hot games and then disappear um, but it's just you know at, at 25 years old you can't just be counting on a guy's potential anymore because it's never it's never just happened for him um, every year I'm, I'm with you and I consider him as a you know, golden boot option that maybe this will be the year he finally breaks out but you know at 25 you know turning 26 in november um i kind of <laughs> i kind of can't keep focusing on that potential anymore at this point and, and given that you know from what we've heard his contract is up and there might be some interest in spain uh or turkey or or, or wherever um I, I i don't expect to see him back on this team next year but it will be interesting to see what he does uh like you said I, I believe one of the reasons he first moved back here was because of his family um so i don't know if he wants to stay here now uh, but that is that is certainly a storyline to to watch in the off season, as I think is is Kellen Rowe, um, because even though he's back in the starting lineup now and, and playing pretty well, uh, after next season he has the ability to be a free agent by MLS standards, which is not something that Juan Aguadelo can be yet because he doesn't have the age. But Kellen Rowe could actually you know walk and go to Seattle for for free uh, next year. And since we're on this topic, you know, what do you think the Revolution should do with him given those circumstances? Yeah, that's a tough one because uh, you you basically had him as a centerpiece for a long time since he was drafted by uh, Jay Heaps. Um, and he, I, I think he is playing well right now. I think that he – it really makes you wonder why he wasn't playing earlier, especially even just coming off the bench when the team was was dying for game changers to come off the bench and, and, and help out whether they were losing or they were just looking for a goal in general. Um, I mean, you, you don't want to go for free because this is a guy who – before the season was a national team prospect. And, and I know during the recent U.S. friendlies, I can't remember who it was, but somebody was saying, someone that was a, a national commentator was saying, what would this team look like if Kellen Rowe was out there? What would this team look like if they, he was playing number 10 or if he was coming off the wing? Uh, and at this point, that's not really even an option, uh, partly because he's getting a little bit older, but also because he's not playing for the Revs. I mean, you know, if you're the U.S. national team uh, coach, Derek Serkin, you can't be calling in 
wanting to, uh, sorry, Kellen Rowe when he can't even make the uh, 18 or, uh, sorry, he can't even make, call off the bench for the revolution. Uh, but this, so at the same time, you know, you, you can't let him go for free. I think mean, that's the biggest thing. I think that either you re-sign him and kind of promise that he is going to get more minutes, that he's going to be a central piece, uh, or you trade him in the offseason or, or by the mid-year point. Because um, if you just let him go for free, especially to I mean, like, to a Seattle, I think they definitely want him. And uh, even the Seattle GM has said in the past that the, the Revs are pretty hard to negotiate with. It was a little tongue-in-cheek when he said that. Uh, but it is interesting that he makes that that point about Michael Burns and the revolution. Um, if you let him go for free, I think that'd be pretty disastrous. Uh, you want to get something for a player of that caliber and a fan favorite. I mean, a lot of players like Kellen Rowe and for him to walk away for free would be, would be heartbreaking. Cause you see Lee win that situation play out where they end up getting, you know, a decent, a decent haul for a guy who, who wasn't going to factor in for this team. Um, you got like Kellen Rowe, you got to make sure you get something for him instead of just letting him go. And am I being too negative by, by thinking that it might already be too late to convince him to, to come back and extend his contract after 2019, um, you know, given the, the lack of playing time he had early on in the season and the, the lack of opportunities he got early on in the season? Um, and, and also given the fact that, we, as we know, he's, you know, a big, big fan of his hometown, Seattle, and has it, you know, the skyline tattooed on his arm, um, that the opportunity to go back to his hometown team at the age of 28 for, you know, for free. Um, and you know, then then they can pay them whatever they want, and not have to worry about a transfer. Uh, would make it so that the Revolution are really second favorites to to anybody to to re-sign him, um, given given that situation. I I don't know what it would take for the Revolution, you know, money wise and and promise wise, to actually convince him to stay. Um, obviously, you can't read into his head, but just you know, thinking through what's happened this year, it, it might already be too late, right? Yeah, if I'm Kelly Rowe, I, I don't re-sign. I mean, uh, I would try to go somewhere where I can get my name out there, increase my profile. I mean, you, you've seen in years past players say that, uh, you know, if I, if, if revolution players played else on other teams, they'd get way more attention. You know, that it's just a smaller market. It doesn't get as many articles on MLSsoccer.com. It doesn't get many features at ESPN.com or whatever outlet you want to look at. It's just a smaller market. Uh, so if I'm Colin Rowe, I want to put my, my talent somewhere where they can be seen by more eyes. Uh, so, if I'm Kellen Rowe, I don't resign unless it's because I really love the area. I mean, uh, Rowe does have a lot of charitable uh, connections. He does have, you know, great relationship with the fans. Maybe he really does like living in Boston, and that's where he sees himself long term. Uh, but at the same time, that wouldn't matter to me if I'm him. For, for me, I'd, I want to go somewhere where I can get some good money. I can play soccer. I can enjoy my soccer, and I can try to put myself out there to, to you know, be a big factor in, in, in a team and hopefully, you know, get some more national team call-ups. So I, I don't see him re-signing. Um, but if, I, so I, if I'm the Revs, I definitely think about trading him on the offseason and, and start filling that role. Like, have someone in place, because you saw that with Lee Wynn. They end up trading him, and that whole thing, the circumstances are totally different there. But you end up trading him, and you never really replace him. You replace him with, with Diego Fugunas on the team, but I can't imagine that was always going to be uh, the, the long-term idea. So if you're going to get rid of Callum Rowe, you better have a replacement in mind uh, that's at least equal to his quality. Yeah, and just just one other thought there too on on Rowe is um, when you talk about him, him showcasing his skills somewhere, it gets more attention. I also think you know as much as he's been doing better lately, that the system that Brad Friedel puts out there isn't necessarily tailored towards his skill set. I think he's a guy that you know if you put him on a on a team like Seattle or you know a team in the league that's capable and cares more about 
possession um, that he might actually show better there. I think with, with Jay Heaps, um, there was more of a desire to kind of play pretty attacking, flowing soccer, um, and, and that worked in Kellen Rowe's favor. So that's a, a, another reason, too, why I'm not sure it would be in his best interest to, to stay here past next season if that opportunity is you know, available to him to, to go as a free agent somewhere else. Yeah, definitely. I thought that he, he worked pretty hard last night, but I don't necessarily think that's natural for him. And not not the working hard part, but I think that the you know, pressing and you know being on both sides of the ball and just doing the dirty work that you see Casado doing, I think that that's natural for Casado. But I think that a player like Kellen Rowe uh, is is more in tune with that free flowing soccer that we saw Jay Heaps play. So yeah, I mean absolutely, I think that you'd want to hypothetically put yourself in a situation where the system fits your talents and and people can you know see what you do best. And, and of course, I shouldn't be too positive about what Jay Heap said, seeing as he put him at left back too. But, but the, <laughs> the general idea of that system seemed a, a better fit for him. Uh, before, hey, that, at least he was on the field. That's true. That's true. And I do think uh, in those games that he wasn't playing for the Revolution, you would have been better off with him at left back than any other other options that they were playing at left back at that point. Uh, but that's another story. Uh, before we wrap things up, I do want to focus a little bit on the Chicago Fire game, uh, the Revolution's next game at home. Um, Saturday, September 22nd, that came at 7.30 p.m. at Gillette. What do you think we're going to see for lineup changes in this one? I, you know, I, I think we talked about it a bit, but I thought the Revolution looked a lot better when those two substitutions were made in this game. Um, do you expect those two guys to, you know, Aguadello and, and Bunbury to be on from the start in this game, or do you think we're going to see more of what we saw to, to start that last game? I think we still uh, Teal Bunbury start for sure. Uh, Brian Wright has done well in his two starts. I mean, he scores a goal. He does some nice hold-up play. Uh, but you need Till Bunbury's energy up there. He's he's the best person to do that high press and be that first uh, defender when the the opposition has the ball in their back third. Um, so I think he definitely is back in if he's fully healthy. I, again, I, I, I liked Caldwell. And I liked uh, Casado playing with each other, so I like to see them retain their spots. So if you do see a change in the midfield, I imagine Agudelo would replace Callan Rowe. Uh, Agudelo did show pretty well. He doesn't finish his opportunities, um, so that might be a good good choice there. I liked Callan Rowe a little bit more centrally when he, we played in that central position. Uh, so maybe he just comes on later for Diego Fagundes. I don't think Diego Fagundes did anything to lose his spot. Um, so maybe, yeah, maybe you do see Callan Rowe. You know, leave the leave the field and Agudelo enter the field. Mancian probably comes back. Um, I imagine it's probably with Alibaba because that was the partnership that we were seeing before Mancian uh, left left to go to see his the birth of his child. Um, but yeah, I mean, other than that, Brad Knighton stays in there. Uh, I think that we see that what we've basically been seeing for the last few weeks is as far as the lineup goes. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I think Bunbury has, has you know, earned a, the opportunity to come back in and start, although he had you know, a chance or two that he could have done better with in this game. Uh, he did create the, help create the goal with that nice cross. Um, you know, Mancien is an interesting one. If he's, if he's back and available, um, you know, I, you're probably right that it's going to be for, for De La Mea. I, I thought De La Mea had the better game than Andy Baba in this one. Um, Andy Baba did make a, a one really key cross, and you know the effort was always there. But I, I thought De La Mea actually, you know, had a really solid game. And um, we talked about it earlier his ability in one on one situations to to track the runner and throw the guys off in a couple opportunities. Um, but yeah, because that's the partnership we've been seeing, and because it was you know working relatively well, I, I assume we'll we'll probably see that. Uh, what, what have you got for a prediction? It's got to be a win. I mean, the Revolution have to win. Uh, why not? see some goals maybe 2-0 
I, I don't know if we can see a, a, a complete shootout as far as like a 3-0 or a 4-0. I don't know if I trust the Revolution attack at this point to, to put up those big numbers like that without conceding anything. But uh, 2-0, Pania, Bunbury, I mean, that doesn't seem like safe bets as far as people that could score the goals. Although I'd love to see Casado score. I mean, that guy uh, hit some really great shots. I just... Pania has been really good for me. I thought I know he's faded recently, but I, again, I think that he's been solid every game that he's out there. He's always dangerous to potentially score. Uh, but like you said earlier, Casado at this point is definitely making a run at being the team MVP um, because the guy just works so hard everywhere on the field, um, making those late runs into the box, getting behind the ball, shifting left, shifting right. That guy just is outstanding. Uh, it would be fun to hear Scott Caldwell's song again. He had uh, Miley Cyrus's Party in the USA. And he was on the Far Post podcast this week, and he described that uh, he had a few different options, and basically family and friends said, you have to go with Miley Cyrus. Um, so it would be interesting to see, you know, hear his song again. But I think the safe bet is to go with a, a Teal Bunbury goal and a Christian Pena goal. Yeah, I see this game as a bit of a, of a potential trap game. Um, it's it's too hard. I mean, it's hard to read too much into the Chicago Fire absolutely crushing Orlando City for nothing this past weekend because you know, we all know Orlando City is you know the the, the one team out there that's worse than Chicago. Um, but uh, you know, it, again, I don't want to read too much into it. But it was, it's interesting that they you know had that big long break between games. I think they were off for, for more than two weeks, and they went over to to, to Munich with with Bastian Schweinsteiger and played that testimonial match. And the Chicago Fire really seemed to be a team in, in turmoil to that point and. You know, they they waived those two players that had been starting for them you know, randomly right when the window was closed, after the window was actually closed, so they couldn't even replace them. Uh, but it, it, you wonder if a trip like that could finally bring that team together. And that's why I think the, you know you have to take them seriously as an opponent, particularly given that they just had this, this 4-0 win in um, the first game back from that trip. Uh, with that said... This is an absolute must-win game for the Revolution. I think the Revolution have been playing better lately. Um, I do think they get a win. I don't think it's going to be as easy um, as maybe some people think it will be. Uh, and I think it could be actually be a, a high-scoring affair. Um, I'm going to actually guess a, a 3-2 to two Revolution victory in, a, in, in an exciting game. And maybe more of the, the goals that we expected to see against LAFC will, will happen in, in this game. Um, but you know, I, I, I wouldn't write off the fire just because of how bad they've been this season. I think that you know there's still a lot of talent in that team and, and what we saw what we saw against Orlando, as bad as they are, you know, shows that they can still score a few goals. Uh, but, but with that, this is an absolute must-win game for the Revolution. Uh, Seth, before we uh, wrap things up, did you have any last-minute shout-outs for New England soccer or anything this week? No, I mean, uh, I'm glad to be on the, the podcast. Uh, hopefully, um, I'm pretty exhausted at this point, so hopefully my rambling made some sense towards the end of the podcast. But you guys do a great job every week. It's one of my favorite things to listen to. Uh, your, your analysis is always spot on. Uh, so happy to join you, and hopefully the, the fans uh, enjoy the soccer talk that we had this week. Because well, it's definitely you. a fun game to watch and definitely a, a worthwhile game to talk about. Yeah, I think during the as we were talking about off the off the air before we started the podcast, there were a lot of games in the summer that just were predictable and, and played out the same way as each other, and all those you know, terrible losses that the Revolution had in that streak. Uh, but this was actually a very very entertaining game to watch and. Um, a fun one to talk about and you know on the same note as you this has been a, a long weekend for me as well so hopefully didn't ramble and, and go on too long there but I, thanks a lot for for coming on to the podcast uh, if you could you want to give out your uh, twitter handle and uh, any any stories that you have out there that people should read yeah so you can follow me on twitter uh at sethman31 uh, and, and all my writing appears on thebentmusket.com uh right now i just have a 
a recap up from the game, so feel free to write comments on that and take a look at that. Nothing special. I was going to do a three thoughts, but I decided to come on here and do some audio instead. So uh, hopefully the audio version suffices as far as what I thought of the game, and, and maybe I'll get to writing some uh, some articles and, and some pieces and some uh, analysis about what we what we saw on Saturday night. Yeah, and be sure to follow Seth on Twitter if you're a Revolution fan. It's it's well worth it. Um, on on that note, sorry to all, all of our followers that uh, didn't get any questions in this week because we weren't sure we were going to be recording until the, the very last minute. So I, I posted it on there as we were recording, and I think uh, probably everyone was watching the Patriots game and, and, and didn't chime in with, with, with questions on that. Although, uh, sorry if you were watching the Patriots game because that was uh, not, a, not a fun one. <laughs> Uh, but on that note, thanks again, Seth, for joining us. Make sure you follow us at Revolution Recap. Uh, you can follow me at Sean L. Donahue. Again, Revolution back home against the Chicago Fire this weekend in a, in a must-win game. And uh, we'll be back after that to discuss whatever the outcome of the, uh, is of that one and whether or not the Revolution still have uh, any chance of making the playoffs at that point. Uh, thanks again, everybody. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.